Welcome, screensavers. I'm Michael Gallup. I'm Matt Sturdivant. I'm Tyler Sutkus. Together, we host the Silver Screensavers podcast, and today we are celebrating the work of a filmmaker who knows how to wrangle wild imagination. He and his team have done some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, very near and dear to my heart. Henry Selleck, he just released his first movie in 13 years, Wendell and Wild. That's on Netflix. We're moving through his whole directorial filmography and later reviewing the new movie. But let, let's talk about him a little bit. As a young animator, studied at Cal Arts in their experimental animation program, worked at Disney for a while, much like Tim Burton. Those comparisons will definitely come up later. Went on to do commercials and a lot of the early MTV logo interstitials, you know, like the little animated clips with the logo that they would play, like when they were going to or coming from commercial. Um, and like even there, you can see a lot of the wild, surreal imagination that comes out of his head. We have like the tuna can guy opening up his head with the logo. We have this skeleton of a monkey cutting a sleeping man's hair into it. Really wild and cool stuff. Uh, does some short films. Does the pilot of the show called Slow Bob in the Lower Dimensions. I would recommend anybody go on YouTube and check out a clip for that. It's really wild. It has like... This one dimension that Slow Bob goes to, it's it's people, but like they're all within pictures, but they move and they're battling giant pairs of scissors who are trying to like cut up the people's pictures and Slow Bob has to save them. Super, super duper interesting. Uh, he did the creatures for Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. He had it, so after Coraline, which was a massive success, he had a deal with Disney and Pixar where he was supposed to make a bunch of movies, supposed to be a bunch of creepy movies for kids. Didn't seem to go well. One of his first projects had like super big interference from the studio. I think John Lasseter had a part in that. Um, and so we, we haven't really seen the fruits of that, which is disappointing. That's kind of one of my big disappointments. Not, not in his career or in him, but I'm just like... Jeez Louise, we haven't gotten a, a movie in 13 years since Coraline, uh, which which is crazy to me. He's someone doesn't seem afraid to let his ideas run wild, but he has the skill and narrative cohesion to make them to come together. So his first movie is The Nightmare Before Christmas that comes out in 1993. If you learn one thing from this podcast episode is that Henry Selleck and his team made The Nightmare Before Christmas because there's very complicated crediting things, um, and it's not to take away from anybody or anything, but the movie, if you haven't seen it, if you haven't been bombarded with every bit of merchandise that has ever been made about this movie, it is about the skeleton king of Halloween Town who grows bored with scares and thrills, so when he happens upon a Christmas village... He decides to create his own version of the Jolly Holiday. So this story originated as a poem that Tim Burton wrote while he was working at Disney. It took him a long time to kind of figure out how to get the idea into a certain medium. He considered it making it a short film or a half-hour TV special or a children's book. Once it got into the feature territory, Burton couldn't direct... He was making Batman Returns, and I think he was also in pre-production on Ed Wood, and he also didn't want to be involved in the like painfully slow process of stop-motion animation. He, so he did conceive the project, designed a lot of the characters, and produced it with Denise DeNovi. Um, this is credited by written by Carolyn Thompson. We've talked a bit before about how authorship of a movie is very hard to determine. Uh, Henry Selick has stated that 
the movie was rewritten so many times it's like hard to attribute soul credit to somebody and again that's not to not to discredit miss thompson danny elfman did the songs again Selleck direct directed he and his team made the movie uh tyler i'm gonna start with you what do you think of the nightmare before christmas so Nightmare Before Christmas is a classic. It used to be one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, we used to watch it in between Halloween and Christmas because it's kind of that special movie that fits both holidays. Um, but it's just stunning to me, looking back on it, how good the animation has held up after almost 30 years of it being made. Uh, still looks phenomenal to this day. Um, Jack Skellington is such a character, like a, such an iconic character that they're still selling merchandise today for a movie that was made 30 years ago. That's nuts. Um, just a classic, and I love it. Matt, what about you? I second everything Tyler said. It's it's great. Um, I love the story. The voice talent is also very good. The animation speaks for itself. It's it's absolutely fantastic. The score, don't even get me started on the score. The score, you can just take the score from this movie and just listen to it any time of the year. Yeah, I think it's it's classic on the brain radio of anybody who was born after this movie came out. Um, do you guys see this as a Christmas and Halloween movie? Because I, as good as the Christmas Village stuff is, I think that really captures Christmas. I don't watch this at Christmas. I only watch this at Halloween. Fair enough. I think it's got elements of both. I'd say it's definitely more of a Halloween movie, but I still think it's got the Christmas to it. It's a good Hot Topic movie. <laughs> it's it's a it's a trillion dollar hot topic movie so congrats to them on that i this movie is an absolute knockout it's quick it does not drag at all its imagination is so concentrated i could sit here all day tell you every sequence that blows me away i'm not going to do that the opening scene is a perfect audio visual combination this is halloween you may think it's overplayed it's not Every doughy creature that pops up creates this real Halloween bliss. What was really fascinating to me as I was rewatching it most recently is that this is a movie about failure. You know, there's trial, there's error, then there's returning to what you're good at and learning what you can't do in sort of like the limits of your own abilities. Um, I may be like slightly spoiling the nightmare before Christmas here, so there's a warning for everybody. But Jack is bored with his scary life he tries to make christmas he cannot totally separate the two parts of himself he fails to provide christmas joy seems to get it out of his system then gets excited to make new scares again for halloween which i, I found really interesting you don't see a lot of movies for young viewers where the main character just completely falls flat on their face as far as as far as the goal that they're trying to achieve uh, Sally, who is probably the wisest character in the movie, seems to know from the beginning that Jack's plan is never going to work, right? Things just don't always work out the way they should. Also cool that this movie communicates that holiday spirits and specific feelings we get are impossible to communicate, right? When Jack goes into the Christmas village, he's asking a million times, what's this? And he never, he never finds words to express it besides the things that he sees. He tries to create Christmas with scientific methods. He breaks up the bulb, right? The the red or green bulb and drops it in the beaker. Can't quite recreate it. If you're not into all my analysis stuff, it's just a visual marvel. We have Dr. Finkelstein itching his brain. We have the candy corn mare turning his face around. 
I love it every single time when Sally throws herself from the window and breaks apart because she knows she can sew herself together. I do have one question about this movie. What did Santa do with all the creepy toys? Because he took them all away. What did he do? Is that is that the origin of the island of misfit toys? Uh, and like I said, this just a quadrillion dollars in merchandise ever since then. It just like it goes beyond merchandise. It's like a fashion brand in itself. It's so strange. Like it's not strange because the art is beautiful. But I, I, this is like the pop culture thing that has emerged into, you know, Armani and The Nightmare Before Christmas. Those are the fashion brands of the modern age. But after that, three years later, we get James and the Giant Peach in 96. This is based on the book by Roald Dahl. It's about an orphan boy who lives with two cruel aunts. A peach in their front yard grows gargantuan. James climbs inside where he meets a crew of human-sized insects, and they roll off for some adventures. This one was written by Carrie Kirkpatrick, Jonathan Roberts, Steve Bloom. This one was also produced by Tim Burton and Denise Denovi. This one is notable because it begins entirely live action, then switches to entirely stop motion, and then back again, except for the insects. There was a lot of debate with Disney and internally for Selleck about what should be animated, what should be live action. Apparently, this method kept costs lower. I think it works for the story structure, too, because it really, like, divides up the acts and kind of, like, the, you know, quote-unquote realistic part from the magical part. Uh, Tyler, how do you feel about James and the Giant Peach? So this is a movie I barely remembered watching as a kid. So, like, returning to it, I was shocked at how, like, mis- how much I misremembered it. It's a lot creepier than I remembered. I think that's the the Sel- Henry Selick style of like, there's a lot of kind of horror, but not like, it, it's almost a grotesque horror, but for kids, it's very interesting in that. But like the, like the scene where, like in particular, in the, like the scene I was shocked at was when, um, what's the caterpillar's name? I forget. What caterpillar? Centipede, centipede. The, the centipede, centipede, yeah. yeah. Centipede, sorry. <laughs> Could not think of the insect. Uh, when he's in, like, the thing, and they're they're pulling it to make him tighter, and they're going to cut him in half. Like, just the sounds it made when they're, like, pulling his body. Because, like, that's actually a medieval torture device they're using. I was just yeah. like, this is insane. Like, this is for kids. It's just so bizarre to think, like, <laughs> this is what kids were watching back when we were kids versus now. But I think that's Henry Selick's kind of got this cool niche. It's like a creepy stuff for the younger audiences but it's also very effective with the older audiences i agree and i you know i some may disagree with me i don't feel that he ever goes too far which like he doesn't rely on like exceeding violence or anything like that um this will be a a question that i will have once we get to wendell and wild about the question of what's appropriate for children and what's not but matt what do you think of james and the giant peach well i remember watching this as a kid and being freaked out by the live action scenes especially the aunts um going back to it i thought it was pretty solid but it makes me wonder like uh, in all and not just this movie but many movies do when when you're when you're faced with an orphan and you give the orphan to like the worst people imaginable does nobody go back and check up on him 
later? Is it just like stay with these people and have a nice life? Is there no? It was the forties. Is there no child <laughs> services agency? Well, I have a DCF question for later, but also I will say, unfortunately, this sort of thing often because they were so nowadays. abusive. <laughs> yes, I have, a, I have a comment about that later. I uh, I also didn't think the light the animation the scenes where it was animation and live action aged very well. I thought it looked really like bad and goofy to be honest. Hmm. Um overall though, not too bad. I I thought the kid that played James was frankly annoying. Oh, really? I like Especially him. like right in the beginning. I I got used to him after a while, but Though all that said though, the voice cast was pretty solid and it was fun. We get a cameo from Jack Skellington, so that's fun. Overall, it's solid, not my favorite, but good. Yeah, I I don't think it's his best either, but his ceiling is so high that I think this movie is still magical. The characters are so distinct. The episodic structure really works for it. It's just a straightforward adventure with a real like a real kind of tragic optimism to it. It's a very like sad movie you know ends up happy but is sad in the beginning i was kind of shocked by this james sings this song where he says my name is james that's what mother called me sometimes i forget when i'm lonely or afraid then i'll go inside my head and look for james which i thought was like what an intense emotional phenomena to have your life change so drastically that you don't even feel like yourself and you have to like remember who you are and i was like wow that's really deep for for little Paul Terry uh, singing this song, um, it it really annoyed Matt. Yeah, I thought that whole number just annoyed me. I, every time he said James, I wanted to claw my ears out. <laughs> Listen, he's not winning a Grammy, but it, but it was. <laughs> I don't know if that's really like, so snobby, but I just I it it just I, what was worse <laughs> that or in Barbarian where she keeps going Keith. That was Oof. bad. Uh, and her performance is great. You know, but that was bad. <laughs> it's up there. They're they're pretty close. Yeah. The animation in James and the Giant Peach is astounding. I love the look of all the insects: centipede, ladybug, the spider, grasshopper, um, the mechanical shark in the ocean. Love every second of that. The ocean waves are so good. Like mo- when they're molding the peach into different shapes, the patchy hill in the beginning, all this stuff. I do have one movie pet peeve with this, and it's not just specific to this movie. I think pretty pretty much every corner of media that has ever existed does this. Uh, equating ugly people with evil people. In media and life, we assume that physically perfect people are morally superior and that monstrous-looking people have to be ugly inside or are more likely to be ugly inside. Uh, I know it's kind of, unfortunately, human nature to do, but I, I don't like to see it perpetuated. I'm, of course, talking about Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker. Don't get me wrong. All credit to the makeup team. They do a wonderful job. You know, they look cool. They look funny. Very good performances by them. Um, I'm just not always a fan of this, that, like, ugly, disgusting people are the bad ones and that beautiful people are the heroes. But, but we are the bad ones. Not you. I I am. I am a terrible person. No, you're gorgeous. Uh, so the ending. I do have questions about the ending. 
James is living in a big peach with human-sized insects in New York. No one at DCF even looked into that. There was That's no, there was I'm not saying. one home visit. <laughs> yeah. Also, <laughs> so James seems to make his living by telling children of New York his story of traveling around in a big peach. He's got one story. How long does that last? Give it like two and a half years, and then like they're like, "All right, James, you're old news. <laughs> we have TikTok now. Enough, James." Yeah, that would be that wouldn't even last a week, I don't think. When they arrive in New York, I love that the worm says, "God bless the colonies." That was really funny. And then my one other thing is when everybody's around when the so did the aunt's car just go across the atlantic ocean yeah i i I thought the whole like that whole sequence was just a mess i mean obviously by this point you have to suspend your disbelief you got animated talking bugs throughout the whole movie but yeah yeah i don't really have a problem it's just like okay they're here now somehow the aunts have returned yeah (laughs) which was fine so well, I'll tell you, in the book, they just get, like, squashed by the giant peach, like, right away. And that's it. That's it for Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker. Um, I don't think they wanted to have that something that violent in the movie. But when James is, like, accusing them of all these things, he's like, they beat me, they abused me. Only when he says, they told me I was nothing, that's when a cop is like, what? That's awful. <laughs> cop was not having it. That's James and the Giant Peach. Then we have to wait five years for for Monkey Bone. This is what Monkey Bone's about. After falling into a coma, a shy cartoonist is sent to downtown, which is a nightmarish world where he meets and battles with the character who is his claim to fame, Monkey Bone. Here's a fun fact. Monkey Bone is the manifestation of a bone. (laughs) Yeah, he is a a perverted monkey. This was written by Sam Hamm, and it was loosely, I emphasize loosely based on Kaja Blackley's graphic novel, Darktown. Matt, why don't you go first on this one, and then Tyler and I are going to go. I had fun with this one, you know? I I understand it got some hate when it came out. I mean, it's not the best. It, my, my, what I'll say is I, I enjoyed it for what it was, and I thought Brendan Fraser put a lot of work into what he was doing, it seemed like, especially at the point where it's Monkey Bone at the wheel and not, what was his name, Stu? Yeah. I think, yeah, Stu Miley. Yeah. Smiley. But, um, but all that said, I felt, I felt like it was a cool little piece of nostalgia for like early 2000s pop culture and humor much like kind of a master of disguise like i love the master of disguise not a good movie but it just brings me back to an era if that makes sense it certainly was an era a lot of the humor it was silly in its presentation but it was adult in its content which i feel like that is why it probably doesn't land with a lot of people you got to be on a certain wavelength and be able to sort of appreciate the balance there. I, I'll call it a balance or like the, the straddling of the line, I guess, more so than a balance. It's a great but point, yeah. I think that's why it doesn't land so well is because it, it it's like in this weird area between not really being 
be, like being too silly for adults but too mature for kids. But overall, I I, I was good. I, I liked it for what it was. Tyler, go ahead. So I, I disagree. I don't think it's good for anybody. I don't think this movie should have been made at all. Um, <laughs> I couldn't even finish this movie. I hated this movie. I thought it was the stupidest movie. The humor was atrocious for this. I, the, the character of Monkey Bone is probably one of the worst cinematic characters ever made. Just any time he was on screen, I just wanted to die. Is this one of the worst 100 movies I have seen? Probably. That was my thought. And like, it wasn't like I didn't have malice like, oh, I hate this. I was like, this is probably one of the worst movies that I have seen. Or like in the worst 100. So not the worst, but still pretty bad. It's got a lot of creative ideas that could have worked. But one, there is just a terrible script. This script is awful, awful. And two, I felt like there was a lack of cohesion to the art. Like a lot of the things that are created are impressive, but like I mentioned with The Nightmare Before Christmas, all the different creatures and all the production design, it feels of one piece. It feels like it has one goal. The ones in this movie just kind of feel like a bunch of ideas from separate projects that got thrown into one place, if that makes sense. We have, you know, Monkey Bone himself. We have that Cyclops, like, homunculus kind of guy. There's the Yeti. There's the Minotaur. And they just don't... I don't feel like I'm in a world that's been thoroughly thought out like I do in all of Selleck's other movies. It's just kind of like, all right, we got this character and this character and this character and whatever. We're just going to put them together in this nightmare world. But it just doesn't work for me. You know, the, the cast is... I'm tempted to say this is like Amsterdam with a great cast and a movie that just doesn't serve many of them. I, I think they're all trying. You know, John Carlo Esposito as Hypnos, is, he's kind of funny. Whoopi Goldberg's fun as Death. Uh, Thomas Hayden Church, who I don't even think is credited, is like her assistant, and he's kind of funny. Chris Kattan, I will say, a pretty funny physical performance as a cadaver that stews spirit and habits. He was just like, what, about to donate his organs or something, yeah. so he has to tape himself up and like stick and a then, ruler on his back. And then the, the doctors are trying to chase him down. That's hilarious. Oh yeah, Bob Odenkirk is like the lead surgeon. I thought that was probably the best part of the movie, but that comes like an hour and a half in. This movie's also really short, and it felt really long. Brendan Fraser, you know, he's trying to do a dual role with Shy Stew and Monkey Bone in Stew's body. Apparently Ben Stiller was supposed to be in this role, but he chose to be in Mystery Men instead. I think it was a good good decision for Ben, although I would like to watch the Ben Stiller version of this because I would like to watch the Ben Stiller version of anything. Matt, you, I think you really just smacked the nail on the head. Like, the humor is so juvenile right there's you know what is it like the monkey bones the monkey bone dolls like yeah fart the poison dust and like <laughs> what like what is going on but then the first time we see monkey bone in in downtown he's like singing about some woman's butt or something like that well and even the opening cartoon is like yeah him getting a boner like i <laughs> the it's opening too much. cartoon yeah i was gonna say that like that was like t you knew it was bad from three minutes in 
I I will say it wasn't without its moments. All right, you, you know what? I'm I'm happy that you didn't dislike this as much as I did because when I hear about so this is very much like Halloween three, where I hear about oh you know it's a pretty pretty legendary miss for a studio. Um, I'm like okay, I'm ready to like this. I'm ready to to find what's good about it, appreciate it, and that just didn't happen with this one. This one is also a pretty legendary failure. I think it budget was around like 75 million and it only made like seven and a half million lost a ton of money, which, you know, I, I don't know who's seeing this in the theater, Matt, to your point, I don't know who the target audience is for this. You know, when you have a movie where Brendan Fraser, who's given it his all again, but he's like one about to touch himself to an ape on TV he kisses an orangutan, and then he has to like rub butts because he made a business deal with people. It's like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. The same audience that enjoyed Master of Disguise. Yeah, and what a, what a time that was. We're, we're unfortunately not there anymore. But fortunately, in 2009, so quite several years later, we get Coraline. This is about a girl who moves with her struggling parents to a mysterious apartment building. At night, the girl is invited to a parallel world with parents who indulge her every wish, but at a very high price. Selleck wrote this one himself. It's a really good adaptation, really good as an understatement of the book. It was based on the book by Neil Gaiman. Apparently, uh, Selleck and Gaiman had just met when Gaiman was finishing up Coraline, and he suggested to Selleck, that he could make it into a movie. Selleck wasn't really sure if he could make it into a full feature. Obviously, he did. Tyler, what do you think of Coraline? I loved Coraline, personally. Um, it's a movie I'd seen when it first came out, and it didn't stick with me then, but watching it again, I really could appreciate it. Um, it's got that, uh, like I mentioned earlier, that trademark Henry Selleck like, creepiness to it. Um, it. It's got like an interesting cast of characters, like really eclectic bunch of characters and then you get to see kind of like their other world parts that and then you just kind of see that world kind of this is going to be spoilers i guess but you kind of see that world kind of look as like oh this is a perfect world and it kind of starts tipping into uh oh maybe this is there's more than what it seems and then kind of like a full-out kind of horror type stuff going on um so it's just really interesting to see that kind of progress i think he did everything in this movie very well um even like just down to like the music a lot of his so things have good music a lot of his movies this one does too i think it's used more sparingly than other ones but i really dug everything about this movie matt what do you think 100 percent agree this is probably one of my favorite movies of all time if i like take a step back and look at it it's it's so well animated it's so well written I saw this in theaters, and I'm pretty sure I saw it in 3D when I saw it in theaters originally, and it, I was just blown away by it. The voice cast is fantastic. I love the story. I love the sort of I idea of being appreciative of what you have versus wanting more and more, and there being consequences to, I guess, excess, for lack of a better term. And, um, yeah, I just, I, I can't say enough about it. It's just so good. 
Yeah, this this is one of my favorite movies ever. I could never say enough about how much I love it. Perfectly creepy world, fascinating characters. There's intrigue in every scene. The design, I cannot get over. The stop motion, it requires so many materials, so much artist skill, commend the people who worked on this movie, and of course, time. They knocked it not only out of the park, into outer space, into another galaxy, right? Coraline's hair is iconic. The deterioration of the Beldam from just the other mother to this gaunt creature to this spider creature, the smoothie machine, the mouse circus, the paper mice that come out of the door, cotton candy cannons, the fog in the scene with YB and the slug, the mantis tracture, that draft tank that says, get a grip, soldier. The ghost children do that little like perfect flickering animation, the light up sentry insects, even like stuff like Coraline's shadow as she enters the basement apartment in the other world. And of course the button eyes. When the other mother first turns around, and we see the button eyes. It's one of the eeriest zooms and shots that I've ever seen in my life. Like, I don't ever get... There are two moments that I can think of right now that no matter how many times I see them, they creep me out. This is one of them. Um, do you guys want to know the other one? What is it? Was it the cat calling octopus? <laughs> no. What is it? What's shaking, baby? Or whatever he <laughs> <Yes>. says. <laughs> No, the other one is the best jump scare of all time when Jason comes out of the water in Friday the 13th. It gets me every single time. But back to Coraline. Love the button eyes. The movie is genuinely scary, Tyler, like we were discussing before. Without having to result to really disturbing levels of violence, it's an absolute triumph of atmosphere. Like the beginning, the very beginning, we get these elephantine mechanical hands with these mile long pointy fingers that are sewing a doll and sending it out to lure a child to abduct it. Right. Mr. Bobinski's other self is really, really scary. Uh, The movie is really funny, too. Every single time I laugh when Coraline goes into Miriam and April's apartment and they're the former theater stars. And they starred in not Julius Caesar, but Julius Sees Her and King Lear, L-E-E-R. I I love little details like that. Also, one thing I love in movies this one does, when you feel like you're on a roller coaster and even just watching something, even though you're still, your stomach kind of drops a little bit, it has one of those moments when they're swinging, uh, doing the trapeze stuff in in the theater performance. Perfect Storm has a moment like that, too. The sound is incredible. The bell dam drumming her fingernails is so chilling. Bruno Coulet did the music, like you guys mentioned. It's so mystical, then it's so creepy at a moment's notice. Even the song that the other father plays on the piano at the beginning of that world is really good. Oh, Matt, what was your fun fact about the other father? Oh, he um, he was wearing monkey bone slippers. Yeah, I never noticed that. <laughs> I had to do a double take because I I saw like I like saw the scene where he turned around and he had the he had the slippers, but at that point it didn't click with me. But then she said how he was watching monkey slippers, and by this point I had seen James and the Giant Peach recently, and I knew that he had the Jack Skellington cameo in that. So I'm like, huh, monkey slippers? I wonder if they look like monkey bone. So I rewound it, and sure enough, monkey bone slippers. 
I love your investigative skills on that. <laughs> and that's another thing I love about this movie is that it even redeemed Monkey Bone, which seems like a, a Herculean task. I can contribute something positive to this show every now and then. <laughs> you you always do. Come on, come on. I also like that... Um, well, let me say this first. I think it's a really fascinating movie from a parenthood stance. I think there's an even longer conversation to have that we're not going to get into tonight. I liked how they handled the real parents and that they're not jerks and they're not outright neglectful. You know, some some other kind of types of shows and movies like this just give the kid jerk parents, but they're not. They just move. They're clearly struggling financially. They have a deadline for this garden catalog. And even when they try to connect with their daughter, you know, she gets antsy, she gets fussy, like, you know, kids and parents do. It feels very natural. So they're not just like, oh, you can write them off. Of course she would go to the other mother. I also like that Coraline herself doesn't have the protagonist problem where she's just an observer, right? She's got attitude. She's got fight. She's got spirit. All the voice work is super incredible. I, I love it all. I'm going to give you the animated feature category at the Oscars, and then I'm going to try not to yell, but I might. All right, so here's the winner. Up. No. No! All right, because uh, in this you year know, you it's have... It's tough, it, because Up is one of my favorite uh, other favorites. No, no, no. You know why? Because you in this year you have Up, that's the winner. But you also have Coraline, one of the best movies ever made. You have Fantastic Mr. Fox, which I also could have seen winning. You got The Princess and the Frog. You got The Secret of Kells. All of them good movies. And I'm not taking anything away from Up. But listen, Up does not stick the landing. I'm sorry. It doesn't. I, you know what? I'll say it does. But I think that Up would still be a pretty household movie, even if it hadn't won the award. I would have rather seen Coraline get the award because I don't think Up would have been any less of a crowd-pleasing favorite years from now, you know? It'd be like if, I, yes. it'd be like if it was Cars. Cars is terrible, but people still talk about Cars. You're absolutely right. It, it would have been just as successful. I like put both Coraline and Fantastic Mr. Fox over this. Yeah. yeah. Please. I like it drives me nuts. I'm getting upset about a silly award, but that's what this whole show is about. All right, well, that is Henry Selleck's filmography up to this point. Again, it's been 13 years, but after a brief break from a brief word from our podcast friends, we're going to talk about Wendell and Wilde. Ooh, I've been dying to try this place. Oh my God, me too. I've heard such good things about it. Welcome to the Crime Diner. I'm Cindy. I'll be cooking for you this evening. Here are your menus. Oh, what are you thinking about getting? I don't know, murder with a side of cannibalism? What about you? Ooh, that sounds good. I'm torn between historical mayhem and the social injustice, maybe? Oh. I just want to let you know that each episode comes with dinner, dessert, and a specialty drink chosen by yours truly. Wine Dine and Storytime has had a makeover, and we invite you to slide into the booth with us at the Crime Diner, where each week we will discuss a crime over dinner, drinks, and dessert. See you there! 
All right, we're back. Thanks for returning. We're going to talk about Wendell and Wilde. This is about, it's about a lot of things. It is about an orphan who is sent to a Catholic boarding school where she becomes a hell maiden, which is like an earth host, to two underworld demons who are looking to resurface so they can build their own afterlife carnival. This is directed, of course, by Selleck. It was written by him and Jordan Peele. Like, what a collaboration that is. It is based on an unpublished book by Selleck and Clay McLeod Chapman. This one is on Netflix. Not quite as advertised as I thought it would be. It seems like they either didn't... I'm not going to say they didn't really know what to do with it because they're professionals and they know way more than me. But it just seems like they didn't want to put full force behind this one. And I think there might be a couple of reasons for that. Uh, but Matt, I'm curious. What did you think of Wendell and Wild? I I liked it a lot. It's not my favorite of Selleck's work, but considering the pedigree of like the people involved, I mean, it was a surefire hit for me. I do think it tries to do a little too much, but I appreciate it for trying. If that makes sense, it just. Uh, I don't want to spoil it right now. Overall, I liked it. I thought the animation was gorgeous. I, I liked the themes that it tried to tackle, but I think it just, again, tried to tackle a little bit too much. The voice cast was fantastic. You got Key and Peele reuniting again for Wendell and Wilde. Lyric Ross did a pretty good job as Cat. You have the legendary James Hung in... Quite quite a fun role, I think. I think he it was the most fun I've seen him since uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once from earlier this year. Yeah, he was great. I, I liked him a lot. Uh, overall, very solid, but I think it gets a little bloated and kind of goes a little off the rails at the end, but we'll get to that. Tyler, what'd you think? Uh, I loved this movie. Uh, I really liked this movie. It wasn't as good as Coraline. But I do think it's a strong, like, second best uh, work from Selleck, in my opinion. Um, I, I, this movie was just a lot of fun for me. I, I, I thought, like Matt said, I agree with a lot. He said the voice cast was phenomenal. I think Key and Peele were great as brothers. They had a great dynamic going between them. Um, I, I liked the, most of the characters. I do have some questions that I don't really blame the movie for, but I thought the lore was kind of a little obscure, especially with... Uh, I think it's Angela Bassett's character she plays. Is that right? Yeah, the nun. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Sister Helly. Yeah. yeah, like like some of the backstory of her was just kind of left out, and I thought that was odd just because of some things that, like, didn't need to be in there. I won't spoil it, but, like, I'll, I'll, I'll explain this a little well, later. Well, that's kind of what I was getting at with like, trying to do yeah. too much. Like, I think they were, like, they could have probably left out a couple char- certain, like, background characters and side characters because I think they had too many players that they were working on, and then they realized they were like an hour and ten minutes into the movie, like, oh, crap, we gotta wrap this up, and then they just like... Yeah, I, I kind of agree there is a lot of characters, and sometimes they do kind of go to the wayside a bit, but I do think everyone gets some use, and there's there's a lot of fun being had with these characters. Like, a lot of these characters, even if they're not necessary, they're funny. Yeah. And I think that works out well. Mike, you were gonna say something? Can I throw this at you guys? 
would this have worked and i it feels like a sin to even say this when we clamor for this kind of thing do you think that this could have worked as more of a long form series where you could have because i thought every piece well i'll give my general thoughts first and then i'll pose the question again let you chew on that for a second i also think the movie is really brilliant and captivating it has such strange, seemingly disparate elements, but they I thought they come together, maybe not 100%, but I, I think largely successful. I didn't know where the movie was going, but throughout the runtime, I just wanted to keep it going. I just wanted my eyes to be glued to the screen as this was going on. Only so many movies have starring demons with regenerative hair cream that also explains the school to prison pipeline. There's just I've maybe seen I don't know a couple, but only a couple this year that do that, and this was one of them. I was gonna say it also tackled some other cool stuff like uh, it also tackled some other cool stuff like grief, paternal relationships, just a lot of anti-capitalist sentiment, which I'm always a fan of. Yeah, money was really like at the, at the root of of every of most characters' uh, goals and obsessions in this. The animation is really like nothing else. The character design, the the different methods and materials they use. They use some shadow stuff. They use some cutouts. I just wanted to stare at all of it. Just the screen fare from the beginning that was enough to make me love this. I wanted so much more of that. Of like these, like just these paper spirits like getting tortured in a carnival like i don't like who thinks of that it, it was so good there's so much going on i remember at one point i thought i'd been watching this for at least 45 minutes and i kind of like flicked the button only 23 minutes had passed and i was like holy crap there's a lot going on here i, I do think it's momentum weakens a bit by the end but on another watch i might not think so I was also wondering, and this is going to get to the question I was talking about before, there are so many different storylines and characters. Sometimes we don't see them for a while before they pop up again, so it's kind of easy to forget. I wondered if I'd be able to follow this if I was a child, which made me think, like, is this movie even really for children? Well, it's PG-13, it is. I don't know if the filmmakers intended it to be that, though. Because, like, let's say it's a pretty weak PG-13. Like, this could have been PG. And also, like, I, you know, yeah. I just feel like, not that I'm not a parent, so I don't know. But I feel like most people would be thinking that this is for kids. Like a Coraline-like thing. You know, like a, a creepy but not too creepy movie for kids. But Netflix doesn't... I don't know, Netflix didn't seem to push this thing one way or another. I thought everybody was great in this. Lyric Ross as Cat was really good. I thought Cat got a lot of great moments. I feel like Cat sometimes took a backseat to the rest of the movie, which wasn't like I enjoyed all the Wendell and Wilde stuff. I liked all the different characters. But, like, with a little bit of the overstuffedness, I would have liked a little bit more of Kat because I thought she was a really, one, well-designed and two, really interesting character. But Lyric Ross did a really great job. Key and Peele as Wendell and Wilde. It, it was just really delightful to see, especially when they come up to Earth 
in in the hearse wagon kind of thing and they're dressed uh, up in their outfits really love that angela bassett as sister heli really good james hong who let's just say james hong is 93 years old and he's still like bringing every ounce of spirit to every one of his roles i thought father best was a really funny character when he well i almost said something that i shouldn't have said uh, and then Ving Rhames as Buffalo Belzer, this like demon host of, again, an amusement park where souls are tortured, like what, whatever that is. <laughs> he, he was really great. Anytime Ving Rhames is around is great. <laughs> thought this was a fascinating movie about self-interest. I thought that was the whole driver behind this. There are so many different groups working toward what just they want, right? Father Bess wants to keep his school alive. Clax Corp wants more private prisons in, in the town. Cat wants her parents back. Wendell and Wilde want their fare. Even the trio of girls who are trying to be nice to Cat. And I thought Tomorrow Smart was really fun as, as Siobhan. Even when they're trying to be nice to her, they just kind of want another member who can fit in with their clique, right? Feed your soul, not your waistline, all that kind of stuff. So even when they're trying to be nice, everybody is just kind of out for what they want. And another thing I like about this is that this is not, I feel like it's not a movie with an obvious message at the end. I thought the obvious it, message was the importance of breweries and communities. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So on, on Wikipedia, interestingly enough, this is the first sentence of the plot. Young Cat Elliot lives with her parents, Delroy and Wilma, who own a root beer brewery in the town of <laughs> root Rustang. Beer. I don't I don't think the word root was used once. I don't once. think they no, that not once. <laughs> it's just a brewery. It just said brewery. They didn't even show any drinks from it. He also says beer. He says, says beer. That. Yeah, there's an ale poster in the background. It's like Rustbank Ale. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know what the maybe confusion they make ginger was. ale too or something oh yeah that, <laughs> that is like like are they trying to like make it more for like it's not it wasn't yeah that's a movie. very bizarre it's just ad, a brewery like, to, it to it also all those famous root beer breweries <laughs> that you go to on Friday night <laughs> with your friends just silly uh, but the the animation, like I said, is awesome. I love the boombox with like the large red eye with the the green iris. Even stuff like when a tire goes over an ice puddle, you just go, "Oh wow, that's so pretty!" Like the dancing radiator spark plug, Wendell and Wilde's like labor pet. I don't know what that thing is called. What's the creature called? And don't look up. Uh, of Brontorock. A Brontorock, yeah. Maybe it was one of those. <laughs> So I, I really loved it all. Music by Bruno Coulet. I love the soundtrack in this. I love it when One Little Wild are in the cemetery and Hot Chocolate, You Sexy <laughs> Things, starts playing. That was really I just want to say a weird coincidence. I was listening to A Wolf Like Me a bunch before I watched this movie, and when it showed up, I'm like, oh, TV on the radio! Uh, just an incredible scene it's towards the end. And you were also watching the show Wolf Like Me with Josh Gad. That's Gatt true. I was also doing that. <laughs> Did you guys have a favorite scene in this movie? That is not a spoiler. 
Um, that opening sequence just really hooked me. The animation yeah, it was that, really it good. Just was insane. The two-headed worm, it really wastes no time. Also, Bearsabub is like the best name for a teddy bear ever. <laughs> yeah, Bearsabub and there was Bearsabubble too. Is Bearsabubble just like the floating form of Bearsabub? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. All right, I'm going to drop the spoiler warning now. We're going to talk about some specific sequences. I don't want to say that this movie can't be spoiled, because it can, but I, I don't know. It, I felt like the plot was not, maybe not entirely the point. Not that it wasn't the point, but it, we'll get to it. I, I love the opening scene. I love the screen fair, as I mentioned. Right, the bulging organs of Buffalo Belzer with the paper ghost. I liked it when Bears of Bubbles said... It's a new day in your miserable lives. And then, like, pops all over. <laughs> I love the, the adorable I, voice they gave Bears a Bubble. That part, though. That got me. Thanks, Bears a Bubble. The part that was probably confusing me most was when we're on the golf course with Claxcore. And they're, I wasn't totally getting that they were private prison profiteers yet. And they're playing with Father Best, and they need like the old council members to vote on a city council meeting so that they can have another private prison. I I had to like do a little bit of mental gymnastics for that. Yeah. But they do kill Father Best. I do love it when he comes back and he goes, Reports of my death were greatly exaggerated. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone's just like, All right, yeah. And then the nun's just like, Um,. (laughs) <laughs> what she just had no idea what what to do cat's dream is great when like one little while appear to her as heads and they do like the mini conference to the side and they're like i don't know how to resurrect her parents he's like we could just lie <laughs> he's like oh yeah we could just lie tyler as you mentioned with bears a bears above when she has to keep like pulling the string to keep getting the messages that was really funny I found it. So this was the point in the movie where I was like, huh, I don't, my suspension of disbelief is about to be broken. When Wendell and Wilde accidentally resurrect the bug that had been squashed with the hair cream, they're demons with regenerative powers. Their whole job is to walk along their giant father's head well, as a punishment. We don't know that yet. Don't forget, that's a big twist at the end. It is, yes. To, it actually, he says, temporarily he calls them hair. sons at one point in the beginning. It, yeah, but I the mean, way I they call presented you guys it, sons. The, yeah. What's that? I call you guys sons <laughs> when I introduce you to people. These are my sons. Yeah, but I feel like at the end, the way they presented them, when they're like, dad, and I think, I feel like they presented it like that was supposed to be a surprise. Oh, I thought they were supposed to be yeah, the sons. Well, <laughs> he mentioned the whole parenthood thing is really brought in at the end. But that's their whole job. But their concern, because they want to build this dream fair where our souls will be happy, is money. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. All this wild, crazy underworld stuff. And they're like, we still need cash. Which just shows you that that money runs deep. No, Nobody is free of the want. Uh, money was definitely the evil throughout this movie. 
I love the bringing back the council members and having the makeup department, like with the spare eyeballs and stuff like that. It was very reminiscent of in Toy Story 2 when uh, the, the toy restorer makes Woody all good and nice and clean again. The line, podiatrists are real doctors, exists in this movie. I thought that was funny. I found it very fascinating when the Claxons describe their plan. I always like it when villains are very upfront about their evilness and they're not trying to hide that they just want people to suffer so that they'll make money. You know, that's the, the explanation of the school to prison pipeline. A very, uh, a very clear and terrible goal for a villain because in so many other movies, and of course this is a real phenomenon, but in so many other movies and shows, like human suffering is often like a byproduct or collateral of a villain's plan, but like their goal is to make people suffer so that they'll get more money. Uh, very evil people. I like the eye projector scene with like the green glow and the mechanical monster that was on the wall. Again, I a scene that correct me if I'm wrong, probably would have been a bit more effective if the movie had been a bit more concentrated, but I, I still liked it nonetheless because um, it was all of Kat's bad memories, right? Mixed up into this, this one evil monster thing. But in the end, she kind of saves it, which I thought was, you know, kind of pointing towards like all the bad things that have happened to us you don't want to romanticize them, but at the same time, they kind of led to who you are. They made you the person that you are. So there's, you know, you don't have to embrace them, but um, she didn't want to completely reject them. I could be totally off base with that. What was the attraction that you guys would have wanted to ride on Buffalo Belzer's Fair? Would you want to have gotten burned up in the teacup? I love... Or no, Tyler... You would have wanted to go on the Ferris wheel. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, my favorite part of the, the the teacup one is like the reaction. We're like, oh, that's hot. <laughs> like, just, like, <laughs> just the strangest reaction to getting scalding. <laughs> <laughs> the way they, they don't even have nerves anymore. Oh. <laughs> uh. I, I could have watched, you know how like Marvel does the little shorts, you know, with Groot or whatever. I would want one, just an extended scene of Buffalo Belzer's Scream Fair. That would have been if awesome. If you want to torture me, then just he... get me, you just got to get me on a Ferris wheel and stop it at the top and I'll have a <laughs> That's it. That's all. Yeah. And then you have to watch all of Monkey Bone up there before you can come down. <laughs> I, I'd be jumping down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, all right, that's fine. I can die. Uh, so Buffalo Belzer, of course, has to come to the surface. I feel like we, you know, you know that pretty early on. Um, if you know the structure, leads to oh, we haven't even really mentioned Raul. I thought Raul was a great character, voiced by Sam Zelaya. Uh, I really liked Raul. Really great design on all the characters here. Love the artwork on the building. He like blows away the snow and then, then does the paintings there. I have to admire that this movie tried to not be a big violent fight at the end. And instead it appealed to Buffalo Belzer's, you know, parental nature. And there's Cat's parents there and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I was pretty 
genuinely shocked by like all the jars of demons that were collected by the guy in the school were Buffalo Belzer's kids. I didn't think it was like narratively totally work. That was kind of the moment when the movie lost me. Yeah. Not lost me, but I was like, eh. Well, that's kind of what I was getting at before. Like they, they set up all these characters and all these different dynamics between the characters. And then they just, they realized they only had like 20 minutes left. They're like, okay, we got to wrap it up. So this, this person was this to this person. And that's supposed to mean that. And I just felt like narratively, it got a little sloppy toward the end. Also, what happened to Siobhan after the events of this movie? I had that exact question. Because <laughs> she's just like, bye, I'm, I'm glad my parents are going to jail. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I'm glad she, you know, helped the good guys and did the right thing, but... like, Still her parents. Th- yeah. Is she going to be an orphan? Is she going to go to uh, be placed with her aunts and grow a giant peach and meet a bunch of bug friends? Well, Sponge and Spiker are in America now, so it's all good. Yeah, I don't know. I had the same exact question. And I didn't even realize that until the second time that I watched it. Because she's like waving goodbye to them as they're being taken away. And I'm like, yeah, it's a happy moment because the bad guy's lost. But like, those are the people that gave her life in her home. So like, I feel like she'd be a little mixed on this. Uh, but you know, the bulldozer attacks, that's cool. I do like the little symbolism of the zombie council members, um, going to destroy this town, right? Saying anybody who would try to destroy these people's homes are, are brainless. They're zombies. You know, the Claxons are people who don't really have souls. And then Wendell and Wilde want to make a good afterlife, this glowing amusement park, which I thought was a theme that had could have packed more of a punch right i mean one of people's biggest concerns is that nothing's gonna happen after they die and so like having a good afterlife i think would be the ultimate comfort to people so i i like that they threw that in at the end thought it could have been a little more my only thought uh, my only other thought on this movie is please just make more just let henry Selick and his team and Jordan Peele and everybody else just do whatever <laughs> yes. they want to do. Well, because this was great. Didn't you bring up earlier, Mike, like whether this would have worked better as like a short form series rather than a feature film? Yeah, even like a mini series. Yeah, like three or four episodes, even. Yeah, that that would have been yeah, great. I think so because it brings in like the whole Hell Maiden thing with Sister Helly, who has the ability to like slither underground, and then that's just like not brought up other than like, yeah, I'm also a Hell Maiden. I thought that was yeah. odd. I do think this would have, yeah, it, it's, it would have been too long if they had yeah. done more because it was already kind of teetering on the edge of like, all right, this needs to wrap up. At the same time, I wasn't, I wasn't really bothered by anything that was going on, no matter how ridiculous. I was just kind of along for the ride, which not, not I can't say about all movies. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like it. It, it just feels like it got wrapped up kind of quickly for what was all set up. Yeah, another thing that I kind of thought was the, the ability for her to see the future is used once in the beginning, and then it's not mentioned again until almost the end, when they're like, you have this ability. It's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Like <laughs> They briefly referenced that. Yeah, it, it had a cool like visual element to it. I 
was it i'm trying to think was it even really that necessary to the no. plot because basically she used it to push siobhan out of the way of a brick and then next to show that the town was being demolished and like you can change it though so what is the point of it <laughs> They knew the town was going to be demolished if they didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, it's like Ghost of Christmas Future stuff. There's like 15,673 possibilities <laughs> of how this movie could have ended. And then she looks over and Doctor Strange holds up his finger <laughs> with the one. Ew, ew, ew. We're in the Keep end game now. <laughs> Wendell and Wilde. Oh God! No, please don't. When will Wild Infinity War? Do we not like Endgame now? No, I do. Just because Phase Four uh, hasn't landed with you, it certainly has not. All right. Well, if you, the listener, have any thoughts on it, you can write to us at silverscreensaverspod at gmail dot com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ScreensaversPod, and our Facebook is Silver Screen Savers Podcast. Matt, where can you be found online? You can find me over at Maddie X Sturds, S-T-U-R-D-Z. That's on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Tyler. Find me on Instagram and Twitter at Tyler Sutkus. You can find me on Letterboxd at Tyler96. All right. Well, thank you all so much for watching, and we'll see you next time. Stay down to bone. Stay down to monkey bone. Silver Screen Savers podcast is hosted and produced by Michael Gallant, Tyler Sutkus, and Matt Sturdivant, with additional editing by Matt Sturdivant, intro music by Charles Michel via Pixabay, logo designed by Nathan Seidel.